Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verses 6 through 20. We'll also read verses 42 through 47. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as he usually did. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led Jesus away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed them in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. Now, verses 42 through 47. And when evening had came, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. This is God's Word. We are uh, grateful for God's Word. It's going to be hard, though, to... uh... Top last week, uh, a wonderful week last week. If you weren't with us, just an opportunity to reflect back on the year and what God has done in all of our lives. We had 14 people come up and share testimonies about Jesus' good work and their lives and how He's used them and how He has grown them to be more like their Savior. Um, so um, thankfully we have the Word of God and hopefully I can get your help. If you would help me out, do me a quick, I want to do a quick uh, Bible inspection. So if you would, from where you are, hopefully you have a Bible with you. Remember, if you don't, you can get them in the chair pockets into the aisles. Hold up for me the Bible you're using, okay? Hold up for me the Bible you're using. Page, page open, page open to Mark 15, okay? Hold it up. Let me, let me get a good look, okay? Some of you are scrambling for a Bible. <laughs> Got the iPads out, the tablets. I love that. I love modern society. Hopefully it didn't shut off in one minute. Okay, very good. Very good. This side, just, there's nothing. That's all. Oh, good. Thank you. <laughs> well, the good news is, uh, as I suspected, none of you are any longer using picture Bibles. So that's a good thing, right? No, no illustrated children's Bibles. Uh, but for the record, I love them. I love illustrated children's Bibles. Uh, I'm, in fact, I'm only slightly embarrassed to say that I've learned and had my eyes open to a number of truths just reading with my children through some of these kids' Bibles. And they're amazing. Uh, the Jesus Storybook Bible, that's, that's my jam. I love that stuff. I still use a phrase in there 
that the gospel is God's rescue plan. So just as a friendly FYI, uh, any illustration you get, whether it be an adult or children's Bible, is not, though it was inspirational, it was not part of the inspired Word of God as written, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, written down by the apostles in the first century. The pictures came later. All right, The pictures came later. But that doesn't stop the four writers of Jesus' biographies, including Mark, from using their words to paint for us a scene. Now Mark urgently needing to report what's likely the first gospel written because it was so urgent. Because people were literally dying to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark uses a brevity of words. He doesn't use many words. You might remember that of all the gospel writers, Mark moves us along from scene to scene to scene very quickly with his, one of his favorite words, immediately, immediately, so then, immediately. Because he is under pressure to write this, to get it out, to disseminate it to people who are enduring persecution because they've heard about this Jesus and they need the hope of His life and His ministry and His death and His resurrection. So he spares little words. Now, here in chapter 15 is different. Uh, Though Jesus utters, what, two phrases, even still, Mark spills his most words per historical minute yet. Short amount of time, lots of words, because we witness and hear from countless others, don't we, who observe the suffering Savior from different points of view. Here, here, here. You get politicians and the imprisoned who had risen up against them. You get men and women, the latter of whom were extremely rare as witnesses in any historical document. Yet they show up here. Your blue collar, your white collar, even your middle class come up in Mark 15. You're pious from birth or just passing by out of interest. Pretenders who like to show off or just one of many stirred to an emotional frenzy. It's all here. All of them observing the suffering Savior, Jesus. Why there's so many vastly different characters but so little Jesus at this His darkest hour. Why is that? We're going to start to answer that question. We're going to start with art. Start with art. Most art critics reckon that the passion of the Christ is the most painted subject in the history of art. All right. So, how many of you took art history out there? Wow, that's great, and it, I know it served you well in your career. I'm sure. Um, I, I took a little art history myself. Haven't really used it, but fascinating nonetheless. Most painted subject in the history of art is the passion. By which I mean that time from Gethsemane when Jesus first bled, to his tomb when he finally stopped. And I think one of the reasons this is, is because there are so many characters with so many differing and ambivalent emotions set against the suffering silence of the most influential man in all of history. So people wanted to paint it. They wanted to imagine what it was like. One such artist was Rembrandt van Rijn a Dutch painter of the 17th century who exerted incredible influence through using like earthy colors to convey the most vivid kind of emotions in people possible. He had tremendous influence. I mean, he basically really changed art and the art landscape. He painted and etched extensively of Christ's passion. Here's an etching you're going to see above me here called uh, Our Lord Before Pilate. 
before Pontius Pilate. We read about that a couple weeks ago. Now, I'm talking about this, and you might think, well, well, Ryan, come on, what do I have in common with a 17th century Dutch artist? All right, like some of us can barely draw with crowns, right? Stick figures. What do I have in common with one of the great, world's greatest artists ever? Well, for, he, he experienced sorrow and heartache like any of us. And though he was a Christian, he occasionally, even often, stumbled and fell. Specifically, he just fell again and again through the deception of wealth. That wealth would bring him influence. That nice things would bring him comfort. And that was kind of Rembrandt's thing. It was his weakness. And it caused him to stumble and sin and return back to Jesus throughout his life. His take on the crucifixion was something that no one dared conceive. Besides a guy who kept only his old Dutch Bible by his side during the last decade of his life. He was steeped in the Word of God. And so in the middle of his painting, The Raising of the Cross, you're going to see around this painting, pretenders like the high priest. You're going to see sort of the middle class or lower class, like a centurion or soldier. You're going to see one of many. You're going to see the crowd raising Jesus. But right in the middle, also raising the cross, is Rembrandt himself. You see, he's almost spotlighted, isn't he, in that picture with that beret on. He understood, Rembrandt did, that he put Jesus to death on the cross. His rebellion, his willful deception, his otherwise hopeless future all necessitated Jesus dying for, it, for him. So he painted himself into the scene, in this case literally. He understood the picture that the Gospel writers and Mark especially is trying to paint. There's a reason there are blue-collar, white-collar, middle-class politicians, prisoners, rebels, and pious, passers-by and pretenders, all observing Jesus because we're meant to put ourselves there at the scene also of Jesus' suffering and death. It's not these sort of antiquated people plus Jesus, but Jesus and me. So today and next week also, I want you to do yourself a favor and put yourself there. Try as best as possible to, to put yourself in this scene where this person you'd heard of or followed, or never heard of, but was causing such a stir, was suffering and about to die. The reason you'd be doing yourself a favor to put yourself there is that if the God of this Bible is real, I would suggest He is, if He is who He says He is, then you and I have a problem. See, God issues a divine standard by which we're asked to live. And it's brilliant in its wisdom. It's completely just and fair It's merciful in that it promotes love and care for society's most vulnerable. It's gracious because each command is given to us for our benefit, for our growth. But we don't do it. We have our moments, but by and large, we just can't seem to live up to it and do it. And God then has a choice to make as He looks down on all of us. Will He choose Himself? His glory, His justice, or will He choose us? It's a constant problem. Throughout the Old Testament, we see it. In the Psalms and the prophets, you see the psalmist, the prophets, pleading out to God out of concern that He has turned His face from them. 
wondering, you know, will he love us or care for us or will he reject us? If you notice, the psalmists, the prophets, the patriarchs appeal to God to turn his face back to them, not based though on them, but based on him. God, the dust can't praise you. So please, leave us alive. Let us live. Let us live under your favor. God, what will the nations think of if you just get rid of us? They won't ever praise you or give you glory or bring you the honor you deserve. They recognize that they fall short. So who will He choose? God sends Himself and Jesus to this earth. And each character in our stories represents the inability to measure up to God's goodness and His love and His perfection. Whether it be blatant rejection, whether it be willful deception, or close but not quite, will God stick with human beings or choose Himself, Jesus? What we see this morning is this, that Jesus traded places with us. So that God essentially doesn't have to make that decision. Jesus traded places with us, and because Jesus traded places with us, the Father chooses Him and us. So I want you to put yourself there and consider who might kind of represent you in this story. The lawfully condemned rebel? Is that you? Is it the, you're the victim of lies? Or are you someone whose final destiny for the grave seems very palpable and real in your life? You're grappling with that. Your mortality. Is that you? So we're going to look at that this morning. The lawfully condemned Victimized by lies or destined for the grave? First of all, the lawfully condemned. Him or us. Is this you? Let's read starting in verse 6. And we'll just read a few verses here again. Now at the feast, Pilate used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder and the insurrection, that's like an uprising, like a military uprising, There was a man named Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do for them as he usually did for them. And he answered them, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? He perceived it was out of envy the chief priest had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him release instead for them Barabbas. And Pilate again said to them, What shall I do with the man you called king of the Jews? Crucify him, they said. And Pilate just said, "But, But what evil has he done? Put yourself, if you would, in the place then of this man, Barabbas. Which might be hard. Because how am I, like Barabbas, a you know, convicted murderer? Well, you would have been born Jesus Barabbas. That's his name if you look in Matthew. Jesus Barabbas. Literally, the son of Abba. Abba being a common name for a rabbi at that time. You admired your father, who was also a teacher, but you were yourself no teacher. You were a doer in life. You heard growing up all the promises and the stories of a land to call your own, but your whole life you'd only been impressed by a foreign governor, by people hanging around your house threatening to hurt you if you disobeyed the law. You witnessed friends harmed for saying something wrong, family thrown into prison, for just not having enough money to pay wildly absorbent taxes. You witness all of this. So you become what Matthew describes as notorious for your thievery. 
almost certainly towards white-collar Romans and politicians. He joined a band of zealous zealots willing to sort of take the right opportunity to rise up against the government. You waited for it. You planned for it. You felt it was the right thing to do. So during this uprise, you encounter a soldier, maybe who you witness hurt someone, someone you love. So in the name of getting things done, you strike back with a force far greater than you ever imagined you could deal out. And you kill him right then and there. Others witness you. You're caught in prison and then convicted of murdering a Roman soldier. It all happens so fast. You're unexpectedly called out of prison. People are chanting for your release. It's like nothing you've ever heard before. You already settled that you're going to die for the biggest mistake of your life because you took matters into your own hands. And here you hear your name chanted again and again. You come out, and out of the corner of your eye, you see a man of whom the brutal tyrant Pilate said, I can't even tell. There's no evil in this man. What, what, what has he done? You start to look at him and you wonder, what is this? I sought difference my own way. I know that I did that. I know I didn't do things God's way. I did things my way my whole life. I took justice into my own hands. Started maybe with a good goal, but I've always lived my life doing things my own way. Mark describes you as a rebel. And yet, of this man, what evil has he done? Maybe that's you. You rebelled against the law while this Jesus committed no evil. Maybe you deserve to be delivered over to death, but Jesus is delivered in your place. See, friends, Jesus is condemned so that Barabbases can be released. Rebels. People who've always lived their lives saying, I'm going to do this my way. Even doing a good thing my way, on my terms, and no one can stop me. See, guys, I am Barabbas. I, wasn't, I didn't grow up and I wasn't deceived. God granted me graciously perception early on beyond my years. I could see what was right and wrong. Nor was I thinking about the life beyond this one. and you know, Afraid because of that. I knew the difference between right and wrong. I wanted to love who I wanted to love and how I wanted to love them. I wanted to live how I wanted to live. And while I watched my parents grow as Christians, I watched them grow in righteousness and peace and joy and love. I responded by being more determined to achieve success and happiness on my terms, not on theirs. No one could tell me what to do. Until one day, it hit me. I heard for the first time the message of Christianity. And that is the God of the universe has willingly traded places with me so I could be released. The God of the universe traded places with me so I could be released. He set me free for free. All I had to do was trust that it was true. And I did. So friends, I was Barabbas and have been released through Jesus. But maybe that's not you. Maybe instead, you've been victimized by deception in your life. You've been victimized by lies. What will God do for you? Will it be Him? Or will it be you? Let's read in verses 
16 through 20 again. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. They clothed them in a purple cloak. They did Jesus. Twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. They began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! They were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his clothes back on him. And they led him away to crucify him. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of the soldiers. Again, difficult to do. None of you, as far as I'm aware, are currently military people. A few of you have been. Did the soldiers willfully hate Jesus, though? Did they hate Jesus Himself? His life? His ministry? No. They didn't. They Almost certainly they weren't Palestinian. But either they were half-citizens of Rome trying to earn their citizenship to become full citizens. That's what soldiers of this caliber were doing. Or, they were foreign soldiers now conquered to be in the army of Caesar and serve Him. So, they were now in this position of power. They weren't lashing out against Jesus per se, but having been themselves on the, on the sort of the butt end of power, they had this opportunity to show power, to show their venom towards somebody else who had to take it. See, they were just privates in the military, grunts, having to take power shown towards them and abuse. Now they could show it towards someone else. Someone whom they were allowed to show it towards because he claimed to be king, which was treason against Caesar. And he willingly took it. He didn't even fight back. Can you imagine a life being conditioned since you were a young person to believe that might makes right and might gives right? right? That having some power, having some influence, gives you a right to do what you want in your life and towards others. Can you imagine that? Actually, I think we all can. Some of us live our whole lives trying to achieve that kind of influence. We say it's always for the good, but how many times is power corrupt? Maybe it's even corrupted your heart, if you're honest. So you spend your life working up the ladder, enduring abuse, the occasional snide remark, the notion that you, know, you could always do it better, and you've encouraged yourself with, yeah, but this is the way the world works. If I keep working hard... I'll get there. I'll finally have power. And maybe you do get there. But to quote uh, one of my favorite books that my boys and I are now reading together, it's lots of fun, The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, he said of the earthly kings in that book who felt so significant because they've been given these special rings of power. He said of them, but they are all of them deceived. The Apostle John warns us in 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of possessions. None of this is from the Father. It's of the world. And he goes on to say that it's all passing away. It's a deception. Deceived by power and influence. Many are lured through gaining well security status. Think that we can be kings of our own lives such that we can't see the true king who is right before us. King Jesus. Maybe you are that soldier. You're just marching through the deception of life, working your way up to have more power, a little more influence. You tell yourself you'll do good with it. And that's what you're living for. You're your own king. But you can't see the king of kings before you. 
it's ironic for these soldiers because each of them actually acknowledge all the things worthy of a king, don't they, in Jesus. They lead Jesus into a royal palace, we see in verse 16. An entire battalion is before his beck and call. In verse 17, they clothe him in a purple cloak, the color of royalty. They crown him. They salute him. They declare truth about him. Hail, King of the Jews. They kneel down in homage to him as he is worthy of, yet they can't see that he is the true king of their lives. See, friends, the Son of God is victimized by lies so that those victimized by lies might finally see their true king. He willingly is victimized by mockery, by lies, by taunts, so that those who've been victimized their whole lives by this lie of power, of influence, might finally see their true king. I want to show you a portrait by a disciple of Rembrandt's, actually. This guy said, my whole view of Jesus has been affected by Rembrandt. His name is Karl Bloch. He's a 19th century Danish painter. And I want you to look at this painting closely. It's Christ mocked by a soldier. And what you'll see is a man who has been himself victimized by the lie that might makes right, that might gives right. So he's going to let himself go at the first opportunity to exercise might himself. You see that in the painting? He's filled with lust because he finally has this might in his life, this power. He's caught up by it. And now look at Christ as He looks at you. True nobility. Worthy of being crowned. Worthy of being knelt before. Yet willing to be the victim of such vile deception. Such vile lies. Isaiah 50, verse 6, I hid not my face from mocking and spitting. Why? For you. One of the reasons, guys, you can trust this, these accounts about Jesus to be historically accurate is that no one would would ever make up this sort of stuff about a first century deity, a first century God. So we say sometimes, what what makes Jesus and Christianity different from other religions? That never would have been asked in the first century. Because what the gospel writers were proclaiming was so incredibly different. No first century God, no victorious God was a victim. Victorious gods would never be mocked without swift revenge. Victorious gods never bled, but Jesus did to the uttermost that you might see a true king. A king willing to suffer because you knew you needed it to live. That is King Jesus. And maybe that is who you need. Finally, maybe you've been destined for the grave and you recognize it. You recognize your own mortality. And the question is, will you live on forever or will Jesus, him or us? Then we get to the story of Joseph of Arimathea. When evening came, since it was the day of preparation, as the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage. He went before Pilate. He asked for the body of Jesus. How many of you have picked out your own coffin? Probably not many of you. How many of you have picked out where your ashes are going to be spread? To be honest, a few of you. 
How many of you guys have planned your funeral? What will be sung? Scripture? That will be said? Who's going to preside? Who, how many of you guys tentatively planned your own funeral? Raise your hand. It's okay. Yeah. Maybe through sickness or through recognizing you're going to die someday, you have faced your mortality. Maybe that's you. You might be Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a respected religious man. He was the leader, a leader amongst the religious leaders whom Luke says, quote, had not consented to their decision and action to put Jesus to death. Luke 23. In order to conform, though, to the Jewish law in Deuteronomy 21, a person's body that hung on a tree needed to be removed from that tree before sunset, lest the land be cursed. Joseph knew this. And he he had followed Jesus enough, probably from afar, and had had seen something in him. It had been maybe one of his disciples even. In fact, it says that. That he went to Pilate, took great courage in doing so, and asked him for the body to remove it. Where? To his own tomb. Matthew's Gospel says something very telling, that he laid Jesus' body in his new tomb. New tomb, which he had cut into the rock. In other words, his family had not yet been able to afford a family tomb. He was the first to do so, to buy a tomb. And he had just done so. It's a new tomb. Long respected, likely apparently older, seems like here. Joseph was coming to terms with his own mortality. He had gone out and looked at his coffin. He had bought his coffin. He started to make some plans. And yet he was still looking forward to the kingdom of God. There was this tension in his life of hope, but also the reality that he was going to die. And there was something about Jesus, perhaps kind of this only hope kind of feeling that maybe Jesus would be the one to usher in God's kingdom on earth. It was enough hope for him to trade out what he had just spent so much money to buy. I'm just going to put Jesus there. Karl Bloch's also very vivid painting I'm going to show you here called The Entombment of Christ. I want you to look at it closely. Another beautiful picture. Pay attention here in this picture, if you would. The Entombment of Christ. The man in the background. Do you see him there? He's pointing. He's looking at Joseph, but he's pointing inside the cut rock into the doorway as if saying, you want your final hope to go in here? To be in here? Into darkness? Into the abyss from which no one has ever come out? No one's ever come out of it too. And Joseph, you see him right, looking back as if to say, where else am I supposed to place my hope? Maybe you're Joseph of Arimathea. And for you, there's good news. Jesus endured the grave so that it would not remain our final destination. Jesus endured the grave so it wouldn't remain our final destination. God is perfect. His laws, his ways are just and good. So someone perfect, just and good had to trade places with us to endure the grave in our place so we would never have to. And that someone is Jesus. Paint yourself in the story. Who are you? Are you a rebel? Are you deceived? Are you kind of aware that I'm I'm destined for a grave. 
Jesus, friends, is condemned so rebels can be released. He willingly submits as the victim of the most vile lies so that those victimized by the lies of wealth, comfort, power might see their true king and he endured the grave so that it might not remain your final destination. And the story doesn't end here with Jesus' costly trade. He is released from the prison of death. He shocks those deceived into thinking that his kingdom had died with him. He rises and he walks out of Joseph's grave. Victorious. We don't know if Barabbas, these soldiers, or even Joseph trusted Jesus to be their Savior, their resurrected Savior, but he he traded places with them so they'd have every opportunity to receive undeserved life forever. I I, I want to finish telling you about Rembrandt Van Rijn. Did you know that he forever changed the way Jesus was visually portrayed? Which is a huge deal in art. He forever changed the way Jesus, probably the most painted man in all of history, was visually portrayed. This is really interesting, I found. I was doing some research on this. And in 2011, the Philadelphia Museum of Art constructed this whole exhibit based around how Rembrandt changed art forever in Jesus. It was called Rembrandt in the Face of Jesus. The museum curator said this. He said, Rembrandt overturned the entire history of Christian art, which had previously relied on rigid, copied prototypes for Christ. Most Western art gave us paintings of Christ as this beautiful, tall, broad-shouldered, blue-eyed, fair-haired, straight aquiline nose, Christ as the European prince, the Western prince. And you've seen this, right? Most of the pictures you see in Jesus, especially like in old churches and in Sunday school rooms, are the pictures of Jesus looking white with hair about down here and blue-eyed, right? Kind of looking like this with blue eyes. <laughs> and a much more trim beard than mine, as I was told this morning. I need to trim my beard. I'm on a four-day cycle. I've got to do that. So. <laughs> but... Jesus didn't look like me. And and, and as Rembrandt grew a little older, he used a young Jewish man to model for the paintings of Jesus. As he kind of grew in maturity and in age, he started to use this Jewish model for the paintings of Jesus. The result was a more realistic, the curator says, increasingly personal and more biblically informed Jesus. In other words, as Rembrandt grew in years, he grew to see Jesus more clearly and more personally, there's more emotion in his paintings. I think it is because Rembrandt never stopped painting himself into the scene of Christ's passion and crucifixion. He never stopped doing that, guys. He ever recognized that he deserved the cross, but Jesus traded places with him. And so he started to see Jesus and know Jesus and sense Jesus more personally, more clearly in his life. And that can be true of us. A favorite quote from one of my favorite pastors, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, the first link between my soul and Jesus is not my goodness, but my badness. It's not my merit, but my misery. It's not my riches, but my need. If you ever wonder why Christians get into all the dinner party conversations that no one's supposed to talk about, you're supposed to avoid, you know, marriage and parenting, right? Inner cravings, unfulfilled goals. We'll talk about suffering and struggle. We'll sing and enjoy ourselves far too clumsily for a person sober. It's neither because we're pretentious, we're not melodramatic, or just weird. 
We're just this way because we can be this way. Because wherever there is failure in any of these areas that no one else admits, we have a Savior who's taken our place so that acknowledging failure only connects us more immediately to Him, helps us see Him as our Savior more clearly. Guys, such is available to you now if you'd be willing to trade your unbelief for trust for the Savior who traded places with you.